back and today we are talking about some quick science experiments that you may not have heard of or maybe you have and how they work. Awesome. So I'm going to start off by talking about a fun little app and some base experiments that you can do at home, typically around Christmas time because that's when it's easier to get the materials. So I'm going to be discussing poinsettia pH paper. So I'm very, I'm very interested in acids and bases. I love them a lot. And I think you can do a really ton of cool and fun stuff with them. So if you've ever heard of red cabbage indicator, um, I feel like I may have mentioned it a long time ago. Um, I find it really neat. This works a very similar way. If you don't know, if you know what that is, it's very similar. If you don't, then that's what I'm going to talk about. So um, what you're going to need for this experiment is a poinsettia flower. Um, and around Christmas time, you can find those in stores very easily. Some cutting material like scissors, a pot. I recommend distilled water because regular water can have ions and minerals in it, which can then affect the pH of it. And since this is an experiment about pH, it's very good to have the right pH. And you can find distilled water at the store. Like a gallon of it is like 50 or 75 cents. So it's very cheap. A bowl and filter paper, and then various household liquid products to, you know, test your pH out. So to do this experiment, you're going to want to start by cutting up the poinsettia flower and placing those cut pieces into a pot or a pan, and then pouring just enough water on them to cover those pieces. So you're going to want to let that water simmer until the poinsettia flower's petals color has like disappeared, um, and then discard the plant remains. And then you're going to want to pour that water into a bowl or a jar, whatever, doesn't work, just want to store that water. And while you wait for that to cool, um, take your filter paper, cut it up into strips, and then you want to let those soak in the water. Um, you can leave them in for about a minute, just enough to let the filter paper soak up all the water and become saturated with it. And then you want to leave those out to dry. And once they've dried, then Congratulations, you've just made your indicator strips. So really fun. So this is where you can go in, go around your house, grab a bunch of stuff like vinegar, baking soda, soap, hot sauce, hydrogen peroxide, even your own tap water. You can test the acidity or basicity of your own tap water. Um, any type of cleaning products. Um, just be careful if you do this to, you know, check the bleach concentration on some of your stuff because bleach can make chlorine gas and that dissolves your lungs if you inhale it. So that's my little PSA, don't mix stuff with bleach. And if you decide to, it's like you can use bleach, but I recommend to avoid it because it scares me. Um, <laughs> do it outside if you do, I still say don't do it. And, but then you can just, you know, test the pH of stuff. So I would dip it into like a little bowl or drop a little bit on it, depending on what it is. And then just see the color change in the pH stripper and that'll tell you the acidity or basicity of the solution. You can also take the leftover water and then pour those into cups between some products. And you can have a little magic color changing water moment as you add acids or base to it. Or another fun thing to do is instead of cutting the filter paper into strips, you can soak a whole piece of filter paper and do it with a toothpick or a Q-tip or something 
and dip it into some acid or base, and then you can draw a pretty picture on it. You can do a lot of fun things with acids and bases. What really fascinates me about indicators and is why they change colors to begin with, because like it's it's just it's so whack because like you're combining two substances together and then you get this whole new color like what's going on there so that, that's always been a huge fascination for me and i just find it really interesting so i'm going to talk about it so indicators themselves what they are is they're like typically weak acids or weak bases themselves so those compounds have their own structures and they're typically really big molecules um like the most common indicator is hemophiline, which contains like 20 carbons in its structure. So it's pretty big. And these molecules, they all reflect light. So in general, that's why you see color objects reflect certain wavelengths of light. And then that goes into your eyes and your retina and your brain says, oh, look, a pretty color. And then you see the pretty color and you're happy unless you're colorblind, in which case I'm sorry. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so since those indicators are weak acids and bases themselves, when you put them in contact with an acid or a base, they're going to want to react like an acid and base, and they're going to, you know, donate a proton or take a proton, depending on which one they are. And when they do that, that will alter the chemical structure. And when that happens, it can't reflect the same wavelength of light, so it'll reflect a different wavelength of light, so it will appear to change color. So in the poinsettia flower, I mean, it was kind of hard to find in my research. Maybe I just didn't look hard enough, but um, I believe I came across, well, I believe that there are these, well, there are these water-soluble compounds called anthocyanins, um, and they're really complicated in their structures. I'm not even going to begin to explain that. Um, they're, they're huge and massive and complicated. Um, but they're the compounds that give the flower a deeper color. And since they're water soluble, we put them in the water, like in the pan, to kind of boil the water out. The water will actually pull out the compound from the flower, and that'll make the water really deep red, and then the red flower colorless. And then um, I believe that anthocyanin water I believe that's what reacts in the indicator. It wasn't entirely clear if that was the case in the um, like article that I saw, but that's kind of all I was able to find. So I'm pretty sure, based on what I've read, that that's what happens. It's that anthocyanin compounds that is the weak acid, and then those are changing and changing color. I also did something with color, but I did burning pine cones instead, because why not? So I got this from kiwico.com, it's just like the experiment itself, I got it from there, in case anyone wants to find it in, you know, written detail. Um, you're gonna need pine cones, 91% isopropyl alcohol, boric acid, matches, a bowl, a fireplace, or some sort of fire. Fireplace tongs are what they call them, but it's basically just something you're gonna be able to use to grab things and move them you know, hopefully not in and out because that's kind of dangerous, but put them in the fire and then when they're done, or when, you know, after the fire is gone, possibly take it out or just move stuff around in the fire. And water. The first step they have is to build a fire. You can build the fire in the beginning and then by the time you're done making it, the fire will be, you know, high and ready to go. 
Or if you want to make the pine cone and then light the fire, you can do that as well. You're just gonna have to wait a little bit because you'll have to wait for the pine cone to, you know, you have to wait for the fire to be big enough that you can put something in it and have it, you know, catch on fire and just work well. Like you can do with s'mores, you can't put it in when it's super high or when it's super low, except for these, you can put it in when it's super high as well. The first step to making the pine cone itself is, you know, to put the pine cone in the bowl and then take your isopropyl alcohol and pour it over this. And the purpose of this is to help the boric acid stick because the boric acid is actually what's going to cause this green color. And isopropyl alcohol just burns pretty well and it's, you know, it's a liquid so it's going to help this boric acid stick because it's not, it's not a liquid, it's a powder, I believe. And so that's not just going to stick on the pine cone, you need something to help it adhere, which is what the isopropyl alcohol is for. And so then after, you know, you have a pretty, a fair amount, just enough to, you know, have that stick, you can sprinkle the boric acid on. And you don't want to be very sparing. You want a well, not you want you want a fair amount because if there's not enough, the fire will not be green, and that'll be sad. And you also don't want to waste too much. So a fair amount, you know, I go more rather than less because if there's not enough, there won't be a fire that's green, and that's sad because that's the point of the experiment. And if there's too much, I don't really know what'll happen because it didn't warn against that, so I'm assuming it's not anything that bad. Um, it'll probably just be that you used more boric acid than you had to. Then you're going to pour a little bit more isopropyl alcohol on the pine cone, and be very careful with this amount because you do not want to put a lot on because you do not want it to wash off. If you put a bunch of, you know, if you put a bunch of it on, you're going to wash the boric acid off, and that's something we need. Just put it on so it's, it's damp, because you want it Oddly enough, you want it to be damp so it lights on fire more because isopropyl alcohol is very flammable. And I don't know how flammable boric acid is, but I do know that, you know, pine cones and isopropyl alcohol are very flammable. So even if boric acid is not that flammable, having it around all of this flammable material will definitely help it light on fire and just help you get that effect that you want. And then you will use your fireplace tongs or whatever you have to move things around in the fire um, and you're going to put your pine cone in the fire. This is the part where you might not see a green flame very quickly. Once again, before you put it in you want to make sure that the, the flame is high enough that it's not going to be covered by this. Like you want the flame to be high enough that it can light the pine cone on fire. You don't want it to have a hard time lighting it on fire because that's just going to be frustrating for you and it's going to be a lot of work. So you want the flame to be high enough that it can, you know, easily light that pine cone on fire. At the same time though, you do not want the pine cone in a place where there is a lot of orange flame. So what you can do is light it in a place where there's a lot of fire and then move it over off to the side because even if it burns green, if there's a bunch of orange flame around it, you're not going to be able to see it. So you can either put it off to the side if there are some flames over there, or you can light it in a big spot and then move it over to the side. This is why, you know, you can't use your hands because that's a bad idea. Also, just generally try not to, you know, use stuff with fire with your hands just because it's not a good idea. And of course, you will want adult supervision because it's, it's fire, you know. 
it, it's just a good idea to have adult supervision. And the water was to douse the flame when you're done, which you know is always a good idea to prevent anything bad from happening after the fire goes, well after the fire, you know, goes out if it doesn't actually go out. You just, it prevents bad things from happening if you pour water on it. But why does this work? Well, boric acid contains boron, which if you remember from our early, early episodes, is a boron, I mean, is a noble gas. And noble gases are just cool. Neon makes neon lights, boron burns green, which is just super cool. And I don't think we've talked about this before, but you know, light is, no, I think we, we talked about it with neon signs actually. But light is produced when electrons get excited and change their locations, and then when they come back down, energy is released in the form of light. And the color of the light depends on how much energy there is, what the frequency is, the wavelength, stuff like that. Those are, they're all connected. They're all going to affect each other. Because all atoms are different, they're not going to all produce the same color of light because not all their electrons are in the same spot. And so when those electrons get excited, they go to different spots, they go different lengths. And for boron, it moves to a place that will. So when they come back, the amount of energy that is given off when that happens is the amount that happens to correlate with green light. So on that note, Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we'll see you next week, where we will discuss some more interesting chemistry topics.